Well, we've had a wonderful time of worship so far, uh, recognizing uh, God's sovereign hand in, in our lives, each of our lives, uh, and we can give him praise for all of it. <clears throat> what I'd like to do now is turn your attention to, <coughs> excuse me, the, the, uh, the task at hand, which is uh, Hebrews chapter 12. We're in this wonderful chapter, uh, a chapter of application. Um, and uh, we'll see more as we go even into chapter 13. Before we look uh, at verses 4 through 11, I want to, again, set the stage for you and, and say that there is a saying that we have developed in order to explain how a person identifies with a particular object in such a way that the, that, that person thinks and acts and is motivated by what that object stands for. All right, so uh, we would say, for example, that Bill works in the spirit of the company. Bill's obviously an employee, a very model employee, and he works in the spirit of the company. He identifies with this company, believes in what it stands for, thinks and thinks with it, promotes it, develops it, uh, develops his work ethic that 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 has this company's best interest in mind, and he is motivated by success of his company. He's all about the company. This is Bill, and he's a model employee. He has the, is the embodiment of the spirit of the company. Or we might say a student is our class president, and she is because she embodies the spirit of the school. The student loves his school, believes that it offers sterling education, is proud to represent it, acts in accordance with its rules and policies, keeps a high grade point average, and is motivated by the success of his school. Claire is caught up in the spirit of the age. She's influenced by the prevailing thought of public consciousness and is governed by those thoughts, motivated to to preserve and promote a certain lifestyle that, that the culture presents. Now, in all of these instances, these people are governed or influenced by the ideology of what they identify with and share its goals, promote it, represent it, and are advocates of it, championing its ideology. They are in the spirit of it. When we talk about the spirit of sonship, we're talking about a person who so identifies with Christ, he identifies with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, has been born again, has filled his mind and conscience with Christ's thoughts, the Bible, is excited about Christ's will or agenda, lives and is motivated by Christ's return and life and he lives for his glory. He is governed by a biblical worldview. He does everything for the glory of God. <clears throat> Jesus summed it up this way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The spirit of sonship. Now, The first century Jewish Christians that made up the congregation that received this letter, well, they claimed to love Jesus too. And... They did for, or showed it for a while, but they had lost their spirit of sonship. They hadn't lost their salvation, but, but rather the drive to live in light of it that actually comes from it. And in fact, they were drifting from orthodoxy, compromising their faith, and, 
Some among them were, were, were not born again and possibly apostatized, we don't know. And this is not just a first century phenomenon. We can trace it throughout church history. Sadly, we see it in American Christianity today. It's my personal belief, I know you know this, that the body of Christ at large is in a season of apostasy and compromise. Now maybe, maybe you're not, you, you've, you've, you've found living in the spirit of sonship as a Christian somewhat difficult of late. You've been feeling the persecution all around, but nevertheless, forge ahead. Maybe others of you, however, like the first century congregation, have lost a great deal of it and have been limping along the narrow way instead of marching forcefully and confidently on. And the good news is that the writer of Hebrews has something for both of you. And I'm excited to rehearse it with you now. As we make our way through the rest of this chapter, specifically verses 4 to 11, it becomes obvious that the drifting congregation here had found the rigors of the Christian life in a pagan world much too difficult to endure. And according to to chapter 10, they were off to a good start, seeming to have understood the major life principle that the writer would later have to rehearse with them and repeatedly in this great book, and that is faith and the promises of God's future blessing is enough for them to brave the most severe of trials as they march on the narrow way. That's the principle. So we read back in chapter 10, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through insults and distress, and partly by becoming companions with those who were so treated, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. They were handling life's challenges as Christians well coming out of the gate. But that kind of treatment grew old for them very quickly. So what happened? Well, for some, it's possible, as I say, that they were never saved to begin with. The writer entertained that back in chapter 6 and again in chapter 10. Some had come so close and were right on the precipice of trusting Christ, so they endured the hardships that are unique to the Christian faith, right along with the saved community, to a point. It is a well-known fact in the New Testament that hardships usually expose pretenders of the faith and send them running. No believer, or no unbeliever rather, can endure this kind of treatment for a protracted period of time without abandoning the march. They show their true colors and they leave. What about those who are genuine, though? Why were they drifting from orthodoxy? As we've argued now many times over throughout our study of Hebrews, it is possible that many of them had misunderstood the gospel and what it means to follow Christ, at least that part anyway. Maybe they hadn't counted the cost as Jesus warned would-be followers during his ministry. Do you remember that? They grew weary of well-doing rather soon into their conversion. And so they sought to alleviate their distress by compromising their stance, changing their theology, incorporating progressive views of Judaism, maybe 
attending the temple once again, trying to keep up religious appearances with family and friends and the religious community so that they might avert constant haranguing about the dangers of this new cult called Christianity. But this is not the biblical way for Christians to deal with persecution, is it? By uniting with the other side, by finding whatever common ground might exist between you and your persecutors so that you can live there with them peacefully. Now, many Christians today, and some prominent ones, have done this only to the detriment of their own faith and to the confusion of Christians who actually look up to them. This whining and weak congregation had really lost the spirit of sonship and desperately needed to regain it and cultivate it. So the writer addresses them at this point in the book on this issue specifically in order to help them do just that. So in what follows, we see what it means to nurture the spirit of sonship. If you've lost it, this is how you get it back. If you have it, this is how you nurture it and maintain it. Three major truths, really. And the first one is this. The first one is martyrdom. Martyrdom is a logical and honorable outcome of the Christian life that we should be prepared for. (laughs) Martyrdom is a logical and honorable outcome of the Christian life that we should be prepared for. And you're thinking, where does that come from? Holy cow, what? Verse 4, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. I remember a time early on in my pastorate when I was persecuted on several fronts from those who were close to me and it became increasingly more difficult to minister. I did have a few close godly men who witnessed this, and they assured me that it was because of stands I took on the Bible and my preaching and teaching, which oftentimes would kill church folks' sacred cows. But the greatest encouragement came from Hebrews 11.4. I was in my office one day researching a sermon When I encountered this verse, and what a powerful encounter it was, the Holy Spirit gripped my heart with the meaning of this verse and emboldened me to carry on. We all have our weaknesses in the Christian life, those areas where we find championing God's righteousness particularly tough and where we do our heaviest fighting, all of us. For me... Complaining to God and being ungrateful, at least knowingly, to the point of being angry with God, has never been one of them. I have others, but this is not one of them. I knew godly men who actually, on occasion, as they put it, would have it out with God over the troubles in their lives. But I could never do this. To get mad at God or be bitter toward him for certain seasons in my life that he tailor-made for me made absolutely no sense. And frankly, whining and complaining smacks of mistrust and sin. And if I were going to start whining and complaining and taking issue with the Almighty for what I was enduring, well, this would have been the time for me to do it. And as I read this verse, Hebrews 11.4, 
I distinctly remember feeling embarrassed over the thought of ever complaining to my first love. I did have it out that day, but not with God, but with myself. Here is some of my self-talk. I said to myself, you know, you have no good reason to complain about your situation. You know that, right? God never promised you a thriving ministry. He promised you heaven. You need to continue to be faithful no matter how lonely it gets for you. It is enough that God is with you. It makes no difference if everyone is against you. God is for you and that's enough. Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Well, good. Keep at it. Persecution for doing right is a favorable thing in God's sight. And, and by the way, what, what are you going what are you, what you're going through is, is really nothing at all. You haven't shed your blood for the sake of the truth, have you? And if that should happen, well, then you'll be with Christ in heaven, which is far better. So keep up the pace, give up no ground, and continue to shepherd. The reference to shedding blood is obviously to martyrdom in this verse, which some well-known saints have endured by the time this letter was written, and this congregation would have known them. It's even possible that the church leaders whose faith the writer calls them to imitate, who are obviously deceased in Hebrews 13, 7, were actually martyred for their faith. We, we, we cannot know that for certain, but it's a scenario that would certainly bolster the writer's argument at this point. Now, in verse 4, we find a perfect instance of the, in the Bible, then, of preparing us for the worst-case scenario, and that's to die for Christ. I mean, literally. Of all the saints who died for the faith, and many others since that we know from the Reformation era, not one of them shied away from the threat of shedding their blood. In fact, they met it with triumph. They understood it to be a crowning moment of their faith. They shared the same sentiments as Peter and John did, who received far less treatment at a time in Jerusalem. They were beaten by the religious leaders of their day, and they, they walked away rejoicing that God had considered them worthy enough to suffer for the name. Peter would go on in his epistle then to talk about how pleasing it was to God when his followers were treated unjustly for doing, for doing good, and then calls us to welcome suffering when it comes. He states that it's God's will that we suffer and imitate our Lord Jesus Christ as we do. Jesus himself taught on this in his Sermon on the Mount. He told his followers, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company. Persecution for the faith, especially martyrdom, well, it's a blessed thing. It's not something we go looking for. No, we strive to take heaven by storm, to live by faith aggressively, to fear nothing but God in our lives. But we, we should prepare for it. And we're not called to 
Are we not called to set every day ready to live our faith to the death as if our lives depended on it? Are we not called to do that? In Luke 6.23, I seem to remember Jesus telling his audience, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. If the cross is the instrument of death that we are to take up daily as we follow Christ, happily willing to die for him, then enduring anything of lesser severity should hardly dampen our spirits, right? This idea, the idea is we're in God's service. We are prepared to die for king and country. That is King Jesus and the better country. And when you are at that level in your thinking, beloved, when you're there, you are well outfitted and prepared to march confidently through the shadow of the valleys of death along the narrow way. This is the spirit of sonship. And this is how we cultivate it. That's the first, the first thing we need, to, we need to be thinking about and nurturing. Number two, I would say, is this. Welcome God's discipline as an expression of his love for you. Welcome God's discipline as an expression of his love for you. This is in verses 5 and 6. The writer says, And have you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are punished by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he reproves every son whom he accepts. Now, verse 5 carries this pastoral tone that we so appreciate from this caring pastor. Have you already forgotten the exhortation that God has addressed you as sons? Such a personal touch. He engages them. He leads them to some right conclusions. By the way, he puts these rhetorical questions to them. This one is stated really to their embarrassment. It's a shame on you kind of statement. They may have been weak in apostolic truth and babes in their level of doctrine, but they, but there were certain Old Testament truths that all Jews, saved or unsaved, were well-versed in because of their upbringing in the temple, and this is one of them. It's a, it's a mixed quotation that comes partly from Job and partly from the sage in Proverbs. Most likely, Job was the one that said it first, and then became a proverb that the sage would elaborate on. But it's God's truth, regardless of who said it first. In Job 5.17, Job reasons in his turmoil. He talks to himself. He ministers to, ministers to himself. And he says, Behold, happy is the person whom God reproves. Therefore, do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. He's talking to himself. There's nobody else there. Ministering to himself. We know that Job was disciplined not for carrying unconfessed sin, but for the development of his character. And we'll say a little bit more about that in just a few moments. He learned something about himself and God through this whole process. The other passage is Proverbs 3. In verses 11 and 12, the sage says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his rebuke. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. 
Hebrews always quotes from the Septuagint, as you know. And what's significant about these two Greek texts and their translations is that they both use the same words for discipline and reproving. I want to spend a little time here with this because this is important. One of them occurs in Hebrews 12.5. But what's more important or more significant and what you need to know is that these two words belong to a group of words in the New Testament that together present a total and holistic training process for, dis for uh, disciplined living. It's a word group, and they present together a total or holistic training process for disciplined living. What, what that means is that God discipline includes not only punishment for sin, but also character building, as in Job's case, and educating or instruction in God's counsel that's important for maturing. So you have correction, you have character building, and you have education. Those are three aspects of God's discipline. It's a well-ordered, comprehensive training process of righteousness. And it's reflected in Christian parenting as well. We spoke a little bit about it in our Sunday school this morning, so we shouldn't be surprised at this. Let me show you what I mean. In Ephesians chapter 6, which is the classic passage on parenting, Paul uses the Greek word paideia, which also occurs in Hebrews 12.5. It refers to the whole training and education of children, but with an emphasis on correction. That's paideia. As J. Adams describes it, or described it once in his writing, paideia is discipline with teeth. Right? Discipline with teeth. It, it has to do with correcting mistakes, curbing ungodly passions. What we all know, I think, to be punishment. Punishment. Now, I don't like to use the word punishment because in our culture, punishment is associated with retribution. That is, that vengeance or seeing that a wrongdoer gets his just, just desserts. And that should never be the goal of punishment, but that's how our culture sees it. Godly correction should never be retributive. It should always be remedial, which means it teaches. Correction teaches. It doesn't just inflict pain or can be uncomfortable, it helps to correct thinking and behavior. So whatever the consequences that parents have in advance deem necessary as a correction for a particular sinful act that their child commits, they should execute it with grace and love and teach the child that there are always consequences to our actions. That's correction. That's paideia. Now correction is to be done alongside instruction, which is the other word that Paul uses. It complements paideia. It's nuthesia. Nuthesia. Now, this word has to do with educating our child, giving counsel, specifically coming alongside an erring child with biblical counsel as to the proper and godly way to think and act in any given situation. It involves correcting children's wrong thinking, helping them 
really to see why they did what they did, what motivates them, what's in their hearts that drives them in this direction, why they chose a sinful way, and what God has to say about the right way to go, and why they should have chosen that way, and how to repent and change, and how to apply God's counsel now and train for it for life. Together, these two words, paideia and nuthesia, and others in this word group present a balanced approach to child rearing. The writer of Hebrews references this balanced approach in Hebrews 5. It's very balanced. To complement the discipline and correction is paideia, and he uses another word from this word group that means to bring conviction, and that is by the teaching of the word. Specifically in the context of training, it means to expose the true character and conduct of a person, to shine the light of truth there, to help the person see what's there. We see it used in John 16.8, for example, where Jesus says of the coming Holy Spirit, he will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. In the same way, part of God's discipline and Christian parenting develops in the believer a proper conviction of what is godly and what is not. It involves biblical instruction that informs their conscience so that they may think and act biblically. To be sensitive to whenever they sin so that they can be quick to repent of it. And to be conscientious about finding out the Lord's will in a particular situation and carrying it out. So we are back to God's nourishing. Nourishing us to maturity. Training us in righteousness. God the Holy Spirit uses his word when we subject ourselves to it to encourage us and strengthen us and educate us, to convict us and bring correction to us that we understand to be disciplined in the limited sense of spiritual spankings when we carry around unconfessed sin. We have to trust that God knows what we need at the right time in order to mature us. I think Paul is a good example of this. Paul trusted the Lord when it came to his thorn in his side. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 6-9, through 9, that God gave him a handicap. He calls it a messenger from Satan. This is God giving this to Paul. And whatever you believe it was, Paul was certain that it weakened him in some way. He even prayed several times that God would take it away. Perhaps Paul thought he wasn't at his best with this thing in his life. God said no. And he explained to Paul that he had to give it to him in order to keep him humble. God sent a messenger from Satan to buffet Paul. By the way, the word buffet there, it's very graphic, very violent. The word buffet has the idea of striking someone with a fist. So figuratively speaking, Paul was getting beat up. The messenger, who, whoever he was, afflicted Paul and caused him great difficulty. We, we have, uh, we have re we're reminiscent of Job at this point, right? You see, Paul was privy to revelations from God, visions of heaven, perhaps much in the same way that the apostle John had received for the book of Revelation. Paul was an apostle. He possessed a great amount of authority. He wrote scripture. He had certain sign gifts at his disposal. He even, he even gave somebody temporary blindness. 
All of this perhaps could put Paul in a position where he would be tempted to become prideful. Possible. Paul is human. So in order to keep Paul humble and depending on God for his strength and ability, God gave him a handicap. From Paul's limited point of view, it put him at a disadvantage. Maybe he thought that he would be unable to do his best work in such a condition. And he soon learned, however, that, that, that it was always God who worked through him to bring about his desired end. And that God's power and strength is actually all the more magnified through human weakness. He learned this. And once Paul learned this, he was motivated to boast of his weakness and revel in the wisdom of God. What a marvelous turn of events that must have been. He was truly handicapped in some way, and he was in a position of strength that he would never have known otherwise. He was energized in his spirit, the spirit of sonship. We Christians have to change our view, I think, on those parts of life that we We've been influenced by, by our culture and public conscience. If we're going to possess the, the power that comes from the spirit of sonship, there's so much in our American culture that wears our spirits down. Jesus, Jesus says, take up your cross. Our culture says, hey, resist anything that lessens the quality of life. Paul says that trials are tailor-made by our loving Heavenly Father for our good. Our culture cannot fathom a God that would ever want us to suffer. If you're going to receive God, well, God's lot for you, as the psalmist of Psalm 16 had, you have to replace any secular thinking with the spirit of sonship. You have to be part of the team, God's body. And you have to be influenced by his word and his goals. Number three, finally, we come to the last major truth of our text. And I might put it this way, appreciate the nature of God's discipline. Appreciate the nature of God's discipline, 7 to 11. I want to point out it three aspects of divine discipline that helps us appreciate the wonderful and powerful application of discipline in our lives. Three applications why we can appreciate God's discipline. First of all, God's parental discipline keeps us enduring. That's why we can appreciate it. It keeps us enduring. First part of verse 7, it is, it, it is for discipline that you endure. Implication, without discipline, you wouldn't be enduring. God's discipline cultivates our character. He turns up the heat on us, brings us through fiery ordeals. Sometimes it, it's to correct us because of unconfessed sin, yes. Other times it may be that there is sin in our lives that we're unaware of. We commit it unwittingly, and he has to reveal it to us. This kind of discipline has always been part of God's MO. Listen to what he tells Israel in Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord, your God, has led you in the wilderness these 40 years in order to humble you, putting you to the test, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, no one is going to 
believe that God had to test Israel in order to know what was in their hearts. He's sovereign. He already knew. It was for the benefit of Israel that he tested them. Tests, trials, they're always for our benefit, not for God's. He revealed the content of their hearts to them in this kind of trial. God uses trial to expose what's hidden to us so that we can then deal with it. That God's discipline is for our good is both an Old Testament and a New Testament truth. Here's the Old Testament truth, Deuteronomy 8.16. In the wilderness, it was he who fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, in order to humble you, in order to put you to the test, to do good for you in the end. Here's Romans 8, 28 and 29. God works all things to the good of those who love him in order to conform them to the image of Christ. Well, we're not surprised. Same God, same word. Now, sin is not the only reason for divine discipline. It also builds character. When God puts us in situations that are beyond our control, we have to depend on him. This situation strengthens our faith. It drives us to our knees in prayer. And we spend more time communing with him. Okay, second application. God's parental discipline, it's a privilege of sonship. This is a privilege. We might call it a perk of the faith. We should be excited that God should offer this to us. Seven. Last half of 7 in in verse 8, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, (laughs) here is where cultural norms and public conscience will have trouble understanding the legitimacy of this illustration. I want you to listen very carefully. This is actually an issue of hermeneutics, but you need to know this. In the first century, in fact, since the beginning of time, and as late as the turn of the 20th century, there was a universal understanding about disciplining children. And I don't mean just educating them, but correcting them when they misbehave. Universally accepted. The Hebrew sage were not the only ones to address the importance of not sparing the rod. Even as late as the 1960s, parents were still disciplining their children when they would misbehave. But but that was the decade of change in America. Change for so many things. That's actually when we we went from a modern to a postmodern mindset. And that mindset changed at least in the West, and it pushed back against correcting children, including spanking in their younger years. And it grew in America and had been replaced with a permissive, a permissiveness that's very harmful. My point here is that the writer of Hebrews draws on an honorable and respectable practice of human discipline to illustrate the Lord's discipline or parental discipline. Notice verse 9. We're we're not going to get there yet, but he just says, we respected our fathers for disciplining us. You see that? Now, how much more, then, will we respect and honor God for his spiritual discipline? Oh, much more. But you have to believe first in the human discipline to have a full appreciation of divine discipline. 
That's the hermeneutical part of this. Also, the focus here is on parents disciplining their own children. A parent doesn't discipline the kid down the street because that kid doesn't belong to him. Parents love their own children and care enough to, to provide discipline in their lives. In the same way, those who are born again and belong to the people of God are God's sons and daughters. God loves his own, nurtures their most holy faith by bringing them up in the training and admonition of Christ, correcting and counseling. It's a privilege. We should consider God's discipline a privilege. When we do, we cultivate the spirit of sonship. Number three, finally, last application of, of this third and wonderful truth, God's parental discipline is superior to earthly parental discipline. It is superior. With the point made that our fathers discipline their sons, the writer then argues from lesser to greater. This is the argument, lesser to greater, and declares that God the Father's discipline is superior to human discipline. Let's take the verses one at a time. Verse 9, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirit, for the, for the Father of spirits, rather, and live? The writer makes the point that if we respect human fathers for their discipline, how much more should we respect God's discipline? Now, this is a huge part of the application of this text. Do we respect God's discipline? Do we? No matter what it is, no matter how severe, do we respect it? It should go without saying that non-Christians who value discipline in the fullest and complete sense that we're talking about, knowing how vital it was to developing their character, when they become Christians, they heartily welcome God's discipline. They appreciate it. The psalmists are among the champions of faith who were honestly glad that God builds them and nurtures them through divine discipline. Listen to the, to the statements from just Psalm 119. It was good. It was good that I was afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. I know, Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that you have afflicted me in faithfulness. Now let me clarify something here. It goes back to the hermeneutic again. A person does not have to have been brought up with proper discipline in order to receive divine discipline well once he's born again. I'm, I'm not arguing that he, he cannot understand. He can. If a person truly has the Holy Spirit in him, he will grow to accept the things of the Spirit in time. But we understand, don't we, that those who had received a good upbringing with proper discipline would no doubt more easily receive God's spiritual rearing and discipline, right? We can see that because the argument is from lesser to greater. And I see a lesson for us here the farther away a societal generation moves from godly standards for life, the more challenging it will be for those in that generation who become believers to receive godly standards. Right? It doesn't mean they won't. It just means it will be more difficult. They really have to be reprogrammed and trained in righteousness with all patience. 
We see right here in verse 9 that the writer refers to what was commonly practiced in society to illustrate a a theology of divine discipline. It stands to reason then that anyone from a younger generation in in permissive America who may never have received discipline, a disciplined upbringing, and believes, or believes it rather, to be a negative practice, would be somewhat at a loss to grasp this illustration right away, once saved and in the church, wouldn't he be? Sure. And if that's true with discipline, it would also be true in other biblical principles and practices as well. Someone who never enjoyed the love and care of a close-knit family will find the inner workings of the church family and its aggressive one-anothering very challenging. We have to teach them with all patience. Next we read in verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. The argument, again, from lesser to greater is made further here. Human worldly discipline that comes from non-Christian context does its best to bring up a child to be well-adjusted, independent, and industrious, an industrious individual in society. But God, God trains his spiritual children for holiness. He first saves us and then grants us the status of of being holy in Christ. We are all here, perfectly holy, positionally, in Christ. And then he brings us along in a way that helps us to live as the holy people we are. Practicing holiness, becoming better at it, practicing Christ's holiness. It is our responsibility. But God also works to see us live holy lives, right? We work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. It's a collaboration. Christians are very much a work in progress. God will do whatever he thinks is best to bring us from where we are at any given point in our maturing process to where we need to be. God's discipline and its goal is the same for the Christian parent too. We take our cue for parenting not from the world and its latest fads in psychology. Christian parents go far beyond raising well-adjusted, responsible individuals. They train their children to think biblically, how to please God in their responses to life, and to see God as the object of their affection. Of course, we can only train. We cannot guarantee those goals in our children's life. That's God's business and a matter between them and God. But Christian parenting has as its ultimate goal, you see, to prepare their children to stand before a holy God someday. And that's what makes it superlative. With all this said about God's discipline, Christians should and must receive God's way of bringing them up and recognizing, especially during those character-building moments, that God is working for their good to make them more like Christ with the goal in mind to ready them to share heaven with them. And that brings us finally to verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems not to be pleasant but painful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. The teaching is clear. Those who are trained by a disciplined upbringing will enjoy the wonderful consequences in their adult life and be better off 
than if they had never had this kind of upbringing. That's a principle that works, as I say, in all child rearing, whether we're talking about worldly child rearing that dares to discipline, or certainly godly child rearing, and in our verse, divine child rearing. Drawing on common understanding of this practice, once again, the writer calls to our remembrance times when our upbringing, in our upbringing, when we endured reprimand, or maybe we're allowed to experience the consequences of our immaturity and stubbornness, or maybe put in situations that were way beyond our comfort zones in order to stretch us. And as his audience surely knows, that discipline stretches you and makes you vulnerable and forces you to depend on wise counsel. <clears throat> it may have been uncomfortable, even painful for a time, but none of them could deny that such good upbringing is what makes people what they are. They learned right from wrong. They learned industry. They learned responsibility and to keep order in their lives and in the lives of their family. Now we, of course, are being proverbial here. Just want to make that clear. There are exceptions to this. Someone out there is probably thinking about that, so I have to bring it up. There are, there are some who have received a good upbringing and turned out to be slouches. They bristled against the rigors of a wholesome atmosphere and they swore never to live according to the principles that they had learned and they turned out to be nothing more than a draw on society. And there are some who receive no parent, parental guidance whatsoever, grew up in a permissive home, but are disciplined and successful today. They bristled at their permissive family lifestyle, always being poor, always being needy, swore that they would not live such a permissive lifestyle with no standards or guidelines, and they turned out to be successful and have a bunch of kids whom they raise with sound child-rearing principles. Now, generally speaking, what we're saying here is those who raise children with proper discipline the Lord's discipline, <clears throat> will turn out children who are well-disciplined in life. It's proverbial. With that said, the teaching in verse 11 leads us to the logical conclusion that it is when God trains us with such a balanced and comprehensive discipline, as painful as it is at times, there is no question that we are the better for it. The writer puts it this way, Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Becoming a strong Christian, mature in our thinking, wise in our actions, confident in our walk on the narrow way, and fixed in our gaze on the better country, that is, God's promises of future blessing, all comes by spiritual discipline at the hand of a good sovereign. Let me leave this thought with you as we close. Everything without exception, good, bad, or indifferent, that comes our way in life, comes to us by God's design for our good, to make us more like Christ. There's no doubt about that. The catch is, are we in a position to see it all that way? If you must see it this way, I'm sorry, you must see it this way, if you're going to receive God's lot for your life and live it responsibly and go on to glorify God.